This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available now wherever books are sold. Join me here every week as I talk with fellow anti-diet advocates about their journeys toward peace with food and their bodies. And by the way, on this show, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language, so listener discretion is advised. Hey there, welcome to episode 229 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with fellow anti-diet dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, Carolina Gizar. We discuss why we need to stop vilifying emotional eating, the mental effects of starvation, why fighting diet culture is a form of social justice, the nuances of bringing intuitive eating to Latinx communities, and so much more. I cannot wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. It's such a good one. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Olivia, who writes, Hi, Christy. I've been in recovery from anorexia for almost a year now. Before my eating disorder, I struggled with mild to moderate acne. But during my disorder, when I was restricting certain foods and food groups, my skin was a lot more clear. After becoming weight restored and getting my period back, my acne also came back. I have a hard time not connecting my acne to the different types of food that I am eating. Do you have any advice on how I can stop focusing so much on my skin? So thanks, Olivia, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So first of all, I want to empathize with you for having to deal with acne because I know that can be hard in our society. It can be hard on your mental health. And I have mild to moderate acne myself too. So I definitely get it. I've gone through a lot with my relationship with my skin as well over the years. But I also want to point out that your assumption that the increase in acne must have something to do with the food you're eating is an example of a thing that's really common in diet culture, which is jumping to blame food for conditions that are really multifaceted and that actually have little to nothing to do with food. And that is definitely the case for acne, because acne is not really connected to food in the way that diet culture leads us to believe. Certainly, some people might notice a connection between particular foods and breakouts, so I'm not dismissing that if that's something that anyone listening has experienced where they've really pinpointed that something does seem to be a trigger for them. But I have never found any convincing scientific evidence, no randomized controlled trials, which are the gold standard of scientific research, to suggest that there are any universal food-related triggers for acne. There's just no food that seems to be linked to acne across the board in any systematic and scientific scientifically validated way. 
Granted, there are some small short-term studies, so always a caveat there looking at small short-term studies, a few small short-term studies that seem to show a reduction in acne from dieting, but it's likely that that's just because of a hormonal response to starvation that I'll talk about in a sec. And even the researchers acknowledge that there's some potential confounding there in their research. But for many, and I would even guess the vast majority of people, acne has nothing to do with food. Instead, it has to do with hormones. Acne is primarily caused by fluctuations in or increased levels of hormones. And in adults who are assigned female at birth, that usually means fluctuations of estrogen and progesterone throughout their monthly cycle. For people assigned male at birth, as well as for trans men undergoing a gender transition, and often in some cases for people of all genders who are overexercising, it's usually heightened testosterone that's the culprit behind acne breakouts. And for people of all genders, cortisol, which is the stress hormone, is also a trigger for acne. But Olivia, it sounds from your question like you fall into the first group primarily of someone assigned female at birth for whom fluctuations of estrogen and progesterone throughout your monthly cycle causes acne. And that doesn't mean that the restriction was good. Quite the opposite, in fact, because when you're suppressing your natural cycles through restriction and deprivation, it's actually really dangerous and bad for your health. Starving is not good for you, right? And that's probably part of the reason you started on the path of recovery in the first place, because you knew that the restriction was hurting you. I don't think you'd be in such solid eating disorder recovery now if you didn't know deep down that the restriction was not good for you and that it had a lot more drawbacks than the seeming benefit of clearing up your acne. So I would stop blaming the food here and stop looking at your history with acne as a supposed reason to keep restricting certain foods or food in general, because that's just the eating disorder trying to get a hold of you again, right? Eating disorders are so sneaky and they love to try to justify restriction as somehow being good for your health. So instead of going down that road, I would recommend going to see a dermatologist who can prescribe topical medications or maybe pills, pill-type medications that help reduce acne flare-ups. And make sure to tell the doctor, the dermatologist, about your eating disorder history and make sure to tell them that you don't want any food-related advice because... Most dermatologists, I think, are not giving out that kind of advice these days, but unfortunately, some of them are getting into that diet culture game and talking about food, and so it's, it's definitely a mixed bag out there. But for the most part, I think dermatology can really be helpful because it stays away from recommending anything to do with food or weight and gives you medication that really does work. You might have to try a few different ones first before you find what really works for your skin. But there are great topical medications and also some great oral medications that you can take for acne. And then I would also urge you to think about this in terms of the big picture, because you said your acne is mild to moderate, so that tells me that it's not so severe and painful that it's curtailing your day-to-day -day life, although it is maybe affecting the way you see yourself, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But even if your acne was severe, you could get it treated through dermatological and possibly also endocrinological interventions that have nothing to do with food or weight. There really are food-neutral and weight-neutral interventions out there to help acne and to reduce the severity of even the most severe forms of acne. So while I definitely recommend seeing a dermatologist for you, Olivia, who asked the question to discuss possible treatment options, especially if you have any of the painful cystic type of acne, which I occasionally get and I know how painful and difficult it can be, 
it would also be helpful to work on making peace with your skin and making peace with how you see yourself and recognizing that we're really sold an unrealistic ideal of quote unquote perfect skin in this culture, just like we're sold unrealistic ideals of what bodies are supposed to look like. You know, a lot of the images that we see of idealized beauty are airbrushed beyond belief. People have foundation on and they have blemishes taken out. Those images are not representative of reality, even for that particular person, even for those supermodels you see on billboards and stuff. So we're fed these unrealistic ideas of how skin is, quote unquote, supposed to look. And we have this internalized ideal in our heads that we don't measure up to. And then we feel bad about ourselves. And it's very much the same in a lot of ways as this unrealistic ideal of weight and how thin our bodies are supposed to be. And there's stigma on acne in our culture, just in the same way, you know, not the same way, because weight stigma is incredibly damaging to our well-being. And there's, you know, tons and tons of data to support that. But I think it, it definitely can have some similar stigmatizing effects on people. And any kind of stigma, feeling stigmatized in any way, is really harmful to people's well-being. And so I think pushing back on these false standards of skin beauty or, you know, how skin is quote unquote supposed to look is going to be important to you, just like pushing back on the false beliefs about body size and how bodies are quote unquote supposed to look and all of the rest, right? And just thinking about how toxic beauty culture and these unrealistic and patriarchal ideals about how skin is supposed to look is harming you, is harming your mental well-being, and is making you think you need to go back to your eating disorder, which is not cool, right? Your, your recovery is more important. The reality is you deserve to respect and accept yourself and your body, no matter what's going on with your acne, no matter what's going on with your body size. And that includes respecting your recovery, respecting your eating disorder recovery. Because think about how much more important it is for you to prioritize your recovery than it is to meet some false ideal of perfection with your skin. If you went back to trying to restrict particular foods or food in general in an attempt to reduce your acne, it would inevitably tumble you back to a place of disordered eating and rob you of more life, more time, more money, more energy, more mental well-being and physical well-being, all of that stuff. Because that's just what happens when you start messing around with your food when you're in recovery from disordered eating. Really, everyone is vulnerable to that. Everyone is vulnerable to tumbling into a disordered place when they start tweaking with their food in this culture. But I think especially for someone who has a known eating disorder history and is in recovery, it's really dangerous to start messing around with your food. And you deserve to be completely liberated from disordered eating and disordered thinking about food. And that's really true for every single person on this planet. All of us deserve to be free from those things and to have our time and our mental space and our energy available to devote to the things we really care about and to devote to changing the world and making it a better place. And so you, Olivia, deserve to be free of this eating disorder once and for all. And I promise you that the pursuit of clearer skin is just not worth sacrificing that freedom. So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it much more quickly than I can here, come join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. 
There, I answer all the participants' questions every single month, and you get access to our full library of Q&As with hundreds of answers that I've given to other people already over the nearly four years that I've been teaching this course. So you can really get into all the nitty-gritty nuances of intuitive eating by listening to those responses and asking your own questions. When you join the course, you also get access to our private community forum, which is just for course participants, so that you can get daily support and connect with hundreds of other great people in this course. And I also give you tons of in-depth content guiding you through the principles of intuitive eating that I haven't shared anywhere else except in my one-on-one sessions with clients. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. I also want to let you know about a great event coming up from my anti-diet colleagues and friends of the pod at Be Nourished called the Body Trust Summit. It's a free online conference for folks looking to divest from diet culture, reclaim their bodies, and explore body trust as a liberatory practice. And it's taking place March 11th through 17th, so starting in just a little over a week if you're listening to this episode the day it comes out. Over the seven days of the summit, you'll hear from 20 diverse speakers about ways to heal your relationship with food, reclaim trust in your body, and end the vicious cycle of dieting and shame. I'm an affiliate for Be Nourished because I believe in their mission of body trust so wholeheartedly, and they're so aligned with my philosophy and anti-diet practice. So you can use my special link to sign up for this free online conference and also support the podcast while you're at it by going to christyharrison.com slash be nourished. That's christyharrison.com slash be nourished. And finally, I want to share a cool new project by another friend of the pod, an anti-diet rock star. If you're one of the millions of people who spend way too much time thinking about how many calories are in muffins, I want to recommend another show I think you'll love from Transmitter Media. It's called Rebel Eaters Club, and it's hosted by Virgie Tovar, who is a friend of the pod and multi-time podcast guest. This body-positive and unapologetically food-positive show is about breaking up with diet culture. Virgie talks to rebel eaters who will change the way you think about food and your body. This show invites you to literally join the club with a manifesto, journal prompts, snack suggestions, official club stationery, and even merit badges. Listen now in your favorite podcast app or at rebeleatersclub.com. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Carolina Gizar. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. It was pretty good. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Um, I have a lot of positive memories around food. So my parents are from Mexico and I spent the first few years of my life in in South Central LA, which was a pretty low income area. And I grew up in a house, it was like a four bedroom house with my two brothers and my mom, my dad in one room and my grandma and grandpa, another four aunts in the house. And then another aunt in the back with her kids and her husband. So it was was a bit of a tight fit. (laughs) And I just always remember there being food around and it was primarily Mexican food. So it was a lot of beans and rice and lots of tortillas, cheese, meats, some vegetables thrown in, but it was very Mexican focused. There wasn't a ton of eating out. And I just remember it being like very easy and felt safe. And I never had any sense that there was 
not enough food. So there wasn't, you know, I know some other Latino households experienced food insecurity. I didn't experience that so much. I, I experienced much more food scarcity than I did, but that sort of came up later in life. But the very early years, I just remember there being a lot of home cooked meals. And then we would go out to like the corner store to get Cracker Jacks and Barnum and Bailey's animal crackers and candy and things like that. So there were like treats around, but there was never any, I don't remember talk about food. I don't remember or negative talk about food. It was just food. It was fuel. And I think any other Latina will relate to this. Like the house consistently smelled of beans. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, it's still a, a smell that I sort of have like a love hate relationship with. <laughs> <laughs> Smells like home. Yeah. Exactly. When I walk in, my parents live part time in Texas and part time and outside of LA. And whenever I go back to visit them, that's like the first thing that I encounter when I step in the door. And it's really like a very fond, warm memory for me. That's really nice. So it sounds like you were sort of insulated from American diet culture, at least at first. Yeah, I was. But, you know, what's sort of interesting, um, you know, you think through your story. I remember even as young as like three or four, my, so my grandmother is in a larger body, my dad's mom, and we lived with her. And a couple of my aunts are also in larger bodies. And so I remember from a younger age noticing that and then somehow sensing that it was not good but I'm not sure exactly where I got that messaging from. And I think sometimes, I mean, as an adult now, you sort of, you know, the adults that were in your life, you now see them as adults mm-hmm. or, or almost as equals. And I think my, my grandfather was a very complicated man. He was group. He had a pretty, from what I've learned now, like a fairly traumatic childhood in Mexico and, you know, didn't know, had a difficult relationship with some of his children. And I think he, because my grandmother was in a larger body, he would say things to her about that and in, in a disparaging way. So I'm not sure if maybe that happened when I was younger and I picked up on that uh, because we did live with them. But I just, I remember having very distinct memories of like looking at my aunt being like, she looks different than other people around me. And that's bad. God, that's so wild how early that comes in. Oh yeah. Like yeah. three or four. It's like seems way too young to be, you know, making those value judgments. And yet that's what happens. That's when it comes in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's so, it's so true. And it's so, you know, I think back on that and I don't know, it, it has, you know, I think fat phobia has definitely been something that's been with me my entire life. And it wasn't until the last few years that I've really worked through that. And, you know, it's, it's an ongoing journey working through that, but it is sort of sad that that was part of my very early upbringing. Yeah. Do you feel like it changed the way you treated them or related to them? Sometimes I remember saying mean things to my aunt about her body, even at a younger age. And then I think just growing up, I mean, this is what fat phobia does to you. It, it makes you judgmental, it makes you, you know, anytime your own body changes, there's a lots of self-loathing that usually accompanies that. So I think that's been sort of the negative effects of, of fat phobia in my life. And they persisted into adulthood. And it's 
taken a lot of work to undo those assumptions and also the assumptions that you have about yourself and what your body should quote unquote look like. Yeah. And what it means if your body changes or if it doesn't look the way you think it should. Exactly. So it sounds like there was an intuitive relationship with food that got preserved for you at least really young, but the fat phobia piece started to come in and the thinking about bodies on this hierarchy was happening alongside that. Definitely. So that it's interesting because I think that early, that positive early relationship with food for me has actually, I've been able to cling to that in my own journey. And I think I'm lucky that I had those fond early memories. And even in the depths of when I was in really in diet culture, I still somehow clung to that. And that's been the thing that has kept me afloat and probably prevented me from developing an eating disorder because I sort of have a lot of the characteristics that you see in people with pretty severe eating disorders. Like the perfectionism. And the- oh yeah. Perfectionism, um, anxiety, <laughs> anxiety about the future, uh, self-doubt, confidence issues. And I don't know, I sort of, those early memories of eating have really been sort of a life preserver that has kept me afloat in diet culture. Wow. Yeah. That's really wonderful that you had that sort of protection from it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I sort of have those very early memories and I would say things maybe started to change about the time. I want to say I was in kindergarten. I remember that. And I moved there. We lived in a, in South central, there was a lot of Latinos, mostly Mexican and a lot of African-Americans. And it just, at that time, it was like the late eighties. There was just a lot of violence in the area and there, you know, my parents, this is the story they tell me. And I very vividly do remember this. I remember like waking up in the middle of the night and seeing an apartment building on fire across the street, because that was an area where people would congregate and do drugs and somehow it caught fire. And so I just remember having these memories of being fearful of living in that area because it didn't, there was something about it that didn't feel safe. And I think, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back for my parents was there was a drive-by shooting one night, a stray bullet hit their car and bullet got lodged in the roof of the car. And I, I very vividly remember this. And that was sort of the impetus for moving out of that area. And, you know, my parents are, they came to this country with literally nothing Uh, My dad didn't graduate from high school. My mom eventually graduated from high school, but the whole reason for them coming over was to create a better life for themselves and the future family they would have. And so that was why (laughs) that was sort of a wake up call for them to leave the area. And that really shaped the rest of my life and my path in life, that move. Where was the move to? Where did you end up? So it was about 45 minutes north of LA, this little town called Santa Clarita, which is not so little anymore, but it's predominantly white. There's a lot more diversity now than when we moved there in the late 80s, but it's mostly a middle class, upper middle class area. And we moved to like a condo and we definitely were not, I don't know what we would call ourselves, I guess, poor, but there again, it like there was never not enough food. You know, I still got toys. <laughs> so 
I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't lacking for the basics, but it was the first time in my life because before I was in school with mostly Latinos and African-Americans. And all of a sudden I got thrown into a school midway through kindergarten. And my first day of school, I, I get a little emotional talking about this. I remember sitting there the first day of class and the teacher, I'm really sorry. It's okay. No, these early memories are (laughs) really painful sometimes. I know. And you know, you think you talk through this stuff in therapy Mm -hmm. and then it hits you in really random moments. But I think it's an important moment because it was the first time I sort of, it was the first time I really sensed otherness. And I remember sitting there and the teacher threw, it was throwing a beanbag around at different kids and then asking them a simple addition questions. Like what is one plus two? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to count. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, I hope she doesn't throw the beanbag to me. Mm. So it was that first time. I think I really, again, I sensed the otherness and, and otherness and, and inadequacy and, You know, they put me in like special reading. I had like a tutor who was an older kid who would come and they took me out of class. I don't know if it's like once a day or once every couple days, but they would do one-on-one reading with me. And I I remember very quickly catching up. So, you know, when you're that young, I think you're, you know, you adapt pretty quickly, but that was like a moment that's always sort of stuck with me as that first moment where, you know, I'm thrown into a different classroom midway through the year. And I look around and people around me know more than me. And they are, they look different on top of that. Cause I was probably one of the few Latinos in, in that class. And I think also take a moment to <laughs> name a couple privileges that I have. You know, I'm, I am Mexican, but I'm fairly, I'm light skinned and um, my family has a mixed background. So they're mestizo which is a mix of European and indigenous. And, and so, I don't know, my genes just decided to express lighter skin tone and not so indigenous features. So I do have a lot of privilege in, in that sense, in addition to thin privilege and economic and educational privileges and I don't know, able-bodied. I just post on this on Instagram. So <laughs> I have the Rolodex of privileges in my head. So it was a tough transition. And I think sometimes I discount how, how difficult that was at five. That's such a vulnerable age. I feel like that's so many of those things. I mean, I, when you're talking about this, I'm thinking back to my kindergarten experience and just like something that has stuck for me from that age was like, I was really shy and sort of a sensitive kid who kind of hung back and like got the lay of the land before jumping in. And when they, I don't know if this was like for placement into kindergarten or like my birthday's in the summer. So maybe it was, I was on sort of the border of like when they would have let me go to kindergarten or held me back for another year or something. But I remember like the teacher talking to my parents about me and being like, well, you know, socially she's a little behind and we just worry that she might not make friends or something. And I don't know if I heard this or if my parents told me this, which would be terrible but not unlike them because they kind of like put a lot on me very young that I didn't need to know but that has stuck with me to this day like that moment at age five of like you're not maybe quite socially ready or socially okay to like be a part of this group 
So I feel you so hard on having this this thing really shape your future, you know, everything that comes after it from age five. That's like so long ago now, you know, for me, that's like 33 years ago, but. <laughs> well, and, and it's a very vivid memory, mm-hmm. you know, you don't remember much from your childhood. So when you do have these memories, you're just like, God, that must've really, that did a number on me. You know, I sort of think about otherness is always sort of popping up in my life. That's been a big theme. And then how do people belong or how, you know, when you do have that sense of otherness and I think thinness, you know, in the context of diet culture is a bit of a, gives you some passes in some sense. And I think maybe I I clung to that for a long time, like preserving a certain body would give you certain passes in life. Yeah. Because you weren't like, like you said, with those privileges, you didn't have the, some of the additional othering that might've come if you had been larger bodied or had more indigenous features or darker skin or whatever, you know, it might be, or had a disability. So you had those, those protections. And yeah, I feel like also we kind of learn at a young age that those qualities that other, other people are like things we want to avoid. Exactly. Oh yeah. Well, and, and then it makes sense why people defend against that stuff or try to defend themselves against that stuff. So yeah, that was a pretty difficult transition for me. And, you know, eventually you find your footing, you're a kid, but that I always had that sense, you know, I was a little darker than the other kids. I had like frizzy hair, you know, my parents ate weird food. (laughs) I was embarrassed when my parents spoke Spanish. So, which is really a shame because my Spanish was so amazing. (laughs) My grandparents don't speak English. So I was really, truly bilingual and I lost a lot of my Spanish because I was embarrassed not to speak it with my parents. But I, I remember having this very interesting conversation with a psychologist colleague who said, you know, you speaking in English to your parents actually probably helped them adapt better to this country because my parents, my mom has a bit of an accent. My dad has a little bit of an accent. He also learned how to speak English from someone who was from Oklahoma. So my dad also has like a twang (laughs) (laughs) and he has all these very quirky sayings Mm -hmm. that he uses that sound so old fashioned. But I think that actually I, us, my brothers and I speaking in English to them actually helped them learn a survival tool in a way that people like their cousins don't have that advantage. That's really interesting. That's sort of a privilege too, of like speaking English with not that much of an accent or being able to speak English well in general. Yeah. Well, and you you talk about blending in. I mean, that's the first thing people pick up on. Anytime somebody has an accent, you're like, oh, where are you from? Yeah. (laughs) And so not having an accent, again, you're below the radar. You're not sticking out too much. So I think that's been, I don't know. I think, I think about that. I, I sort of imparted a survival tool for them. And so I, it makes me feel a little bit less bad that I lost some of my Spanish. I mean, it's still, I feel like all of it is sort of understandable in the context of white supremacy, because for all of it, losing your Spanish, speaking English to them and having that be a privilege, something that helped them and furthered their abilities to like blend in in the world is all 
a product of white supremacy? Like how different would it be if that wasn't the case? A hundred percent. And I think, you know, they, I think they've had their own assimilation struggles, but it's definitely given them an advantage in life. And I think we talk about the next chapter in life. And I think that's a good segue because they, you know, we moved to this area and my dad had this opportunity. My dad has a, he worked for a long time in air conditioning and he's not an engineer by trade, more experience. He's like hundred percent self-taught <laughs> and he started a business in Mexico with a friend and they started doing well. And it was interesting for me because all of a sudden I went from having I don't want to say it felt like less than other people. And all of a sudden we were now keeping up and then a little bit more. So that opened up opportunities for private school and travel and just all these things we didn't have, you know, in our earlier years. And we talk, you know, I talk a lot in my practice about scarcity. And I think that's been sort of another theme in my life that's popped up. And initially it was, scarcity, you know, when we moved to this, to that white area, like we had very different food than everybody else. So it was very, again, my mom was a stay at home mom. So she cooked a lot of home cooked meals and a lot of it was Mexican food. And we didn't have a lot of play foods in the house and not because my mom had a problem with it, but it just wasn't part of our, our food vocabulary, if you will. So I would go to my white friend's house (laughs) houses and binge on candy. And I remember, my God, Gushers, fruit roll-ups, like <sighs> Keebler had these cookies with like chocolate like, oh, in the middle. Yes. I love those. Oh my God. I would binge because we just didn't have these foods in our house and we still ate, you know, I, I would say I had a really, even in these years, still a positive relationship with food. Like we went out for, to McDonald's and I would always love that. We had like pizza on, on Fridays but the base of our diet was Mexican food. And so these moments where I got like a little bit of a break from the home cooked meal, I would just go to town and sometimes to the point of like feeling ill (laughs) (laughs) because again, that scarcity mindset sets in and next thing you know, you're trying to make up for lost food time. That's so interesting, too, that that was in the context of not being deprived overall, but being deprived of these specific foods, which I feel like is really a nuance that I talk about a lot with my clients and stuff, is that it doesn't have to be overall food deprivation necessarily that drives you to binge on particular foods or just feel like you're eating to the point of discomfort on particular foods. It's more scarcity of that food. Yes, yes. And I, I've definitely, I would say that's stuck with me throughout the years. And that comes up a lot with Latinos and, you know, food insecurity, but also just food scarcity in general. And that definitely has been something that I, I struggled with in the, in the past. And then it pops up later <laughs> into like my first foray into diet culture. Mm, that's interesting. So when, what, what happened from there then after this was, it sounds like this was around maybe like elementary school, middle school type of time. Yes. This was middle, I would say elementary, middle school things. I don't know, felt pretty normal until I think college was really the first time I started thinking about health. And I mean, the first year of college, I think, I mean, this is 
the only number I will ever throw throw out because it's so distinct. <laughs> I went to the gym one time. <laughs> Literally, what? <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, why am I here? I don't want to be here right now. And, and it was, I just subsisted on Chinese takeout, Coca-Cola, and my vegetable was, you know, the broccoli from beef and broccoli. And I don't know, really bad cafeteria food. And it just, I didn't give health a thought until sophomore year. I was like, maybe I should be thinking about this more. And so I made this concerted effort to decrease my soda intake. And then I switched soda for chocolate milk, (laughs) (laughs) which probably has the same amount of sugar (laughs) that I was going for. You know, I was trying to reduce my sugar intake. So, and I was like, well, at least I'm getting calcium from this. So that was sort of that first intentional I don't know. I, that was my first real memory of like having a health concern. What do you think brought that on? What made you concerned about health? I don't really know. It wasn't for my body. It, it wasn't to change the shape of my body. I mean, that's thin privilege. When you live in a small body, you don't have to think about that stuff. I don't know. I think probably messaging around soda that it was bad for you. And I was drinking at least sodas a day. I love Coca-Cola even to this day. And I think it was probably from that. So maybe a fear about diabetes. I don't, I actually, maybe it's not even that, that doesn't even resonate. I guess just a general health concern, but nothing really specific, which is a little bizarre that I can't pinpoint that. Well, and I think there's just so much messaging, anti-soda messaging out there in diet culture, probably around that time too. That was like the early 2000s. Yep. I feel like that's when a lot of that stuff came on the scene. A lot of that messaging about soda being bad and just sort of general demonization of processed foods and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny because I, growing up, again, my mother, my parents never said, well, you can't have this food. That was not the messaging. But I have these very vivid memories of my mom like, but that was really the only health concern that was in the household was fat. And there wasn't a lot of other diet culture messaging from them at all. So it was a very, like we had soda in the house. I just remember it being like a very easy relationship. So I can't really, it's hard for me to trace back with the origin of my health concerns. But I think, you know, I'm, I've got an anxious personality. So <laughs> it probably has something to do with anxiety about the future. Right. And you picked up something somewhere that somebody said that was bad about soda. And so just like yeah. wanting to preserve your health. Exactly. And I remember not thinking, not feeling deprived about it. So I actually didn't have soda for years after that. It wasn't until the last couple of years that I reintroduced it. A lot of it was food fears for a long time, but it's still not something I eat often and not because I have any judgment about it, but I'm just not, I don't crave sweets. For me, like I love savory. So something, you know, soda for me is very sweet. And so it's just not something that it's not a preference for me. Yeah. So the savory snacks and stuff are more your your jam. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Especially with jam. Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Did you go into college wanting to be a dietitian? Was that, did that cross your mind ever? I was pre-med for probably about a year. And then I, it was too much for me. I think I, I just, I don't know. I was like, God, I can't be responsible for people's lives. Mm. <laughs> and it felt like a big responsibility. I don't think I was mature enough to handle it. So I definitely had an interest in science back then. 
but I just wasn't in a place to receive it. And I think it wasn't until after college, you know, I didn't, again, because I have thin privilege, I was protected from a lot of diet culture, just sort of generally until senior year was like my first, I bought a South beach diet cookbook to use before spring break. We were going on a trip with a bunch of friends and that was the first time I cooked and exercised with the intention of shaping or changing my body. And I did that. I don't know for how long I went on the trip and then just kind of forgot about it. And after college, the best way I can describe it was just a little bit lost. I wasn't, I was studying photography. I wanted to be a travel photographer and my interest was in food and like landscapes. And it's interesting. Like my dream was to work for like Bon Appetit (laughs) and all those types of magazines. And, you know, the magazine industry was dying at the time. So this was like 2006. I was right in there. I worked at Gourmet in 2007 to 2009. So I, yeah, totally feel you. Yeah. So I I got the sense. I'm like, oh God, I don't think this career is going to go anywhere. And there's a lot of creepy old men (laughs) in the industry. And so I just was kind of floating for a while. And I think I'm a person who has anxiety and I somehow like stumbled upon the raw food diet And that then led me to the paleo diet. And so that was my first real attempt with dieting. And that I would say I wasn't doing those for long, but the effects that they had on me were, I mean, years of damage and fears about sugar. I mean, rice, any, any carb I was scared to eat for probably until the last two years. How long were you on those diets? Oof. Um, the raw food, maybe about three months, the paleo diet off and on for maybe a year. And it was just, again, it it was interesting. I did, I had experiences. I remember this very vivid memory after my first attempt with paleo that lasted six weeks. It was like one of those dry January type endeavors. And I woke up from a dream And in the dream, I was stuffing my face with chocolate cake with like chocolate icing on top. And I woke up tasting the cake in my mouth. And even then I didn't think that was a problem. (laughs) And now that I look back on it, I'm like, oh my God, like that was a huge red flag. And when I finally went off the diet, I went to like a bakery and bought like a hundred dollars worth of baked goods and stuffed my face for the next thing. week with them. And that was sort of, again, start of, I would say sort of off and on with the diet. It was never longer than a few months because my, and again, I, I credit this to my early experiences with food, which were very positive. I remember in the back of my head, always thinking like, am I never going to be able to eat like rice again? Like I was scared to eat rice. I was scared to eat tortillas and cheese. And it's literally my favorite food. I have it every day. And I remember thinking like, are these actually quote unquote bad for you? So that always kind of stuck with me. And I guess that's the intuition we all talk about that part of you that is looking out for you. And yeah, it just, you know, I was in that cycle for a while, but somehow, somehow I got out of it and was a little bit more liberal with food, but the disordered thinking was still there. So interesting because it was such a short time, it sounds like, that you really were in it and you didn't have the peace that was 
body size related necessarily, at least in the, it's, I don't know if, if that came into play later where you started to fear gaining weight or anything like that, but it wasn't such a big part for me because I was in a very thin body. I think for me, it was purely an outlet for my anxiety, anxiety about the future, anxiety about aging. And I I think back on it and I'm like this, these dieting attempts get, gave me a false sense of control but I think more than anything, a sense of purpose, because again, I didn't know what I was doing with my life. And I was able to funnel all of this energy into cooking and rules and meal planning and going to the gym. And eventually, I mean, I have to be grateful for this background because it's really, it's what led me to become a dietitian. So I can't totally, (laughs) and it's also shaped how I practice now. So I don't look back at it and I'm not, I'm all, maybe a part of me is upset with it, but most of me is okay with that history. Because of the way things ended up shaking out. Yeah. Yeah. So, but again, it's the years of just food fears and maybe not outright binging, but definitely not being at peace when I did have the foods that were sort of quote unquote off limits or that I shouldn't be having. There was a lot of guilt and sort of just, uh, what a what am I doing in the inflammation of my body? <laughs> Talk. That's so interesting. That is a buzzword that I hear more and more now too with the wellness diet, the way that people are pursuing. And it really often is framed as being just about health. And there's usually like a little weight piece in there too, especially for people who are in larger bodies and have heard the weight stigma for a long time. But it masquerades and it pretends to just be about health. And uh. ugh, it's really insidious. <laughs> <laughs> It really is. And I think, so this is interesting. So, um, you know, next chapter of my life is like, I'm in school and I've now figured out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, which quote unquote should be reassuring. And a part of me freaked out. Do you feel like you were motivated to go to school to be a dietitian because of your own struggles or because you were like, let me teach people the way of low carb or whatever it is? That's exactly why (laughs) I wanted to teach people how to be healthy just like I was healthy. And it was, you know, I went in quite disordered, even into the first semester. And I think the second semester, I started sort of loosening some of the rules because I was starting to learn about the science and it was starting to cause some cognitive dissonance. And um, I had, I remember being in class, community nutrition Rebecca Sparks. <laughs> ah, I you went to NYU too. Yes, yeah. I took that class. <laughs> yeah. I remember sitting there like the first day of class or second day of class. And all of a sudden I had this thought. I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is it. This is my life. This is my career. And I sort of like had this surge of anxiety and I was able to suppress it. And then that night I had a panic, panic attack. And it just unleashed this, I mean, anxiety, depression, and the only way I knew how to cope, I, I was on medication, but and that helped a lot. But then sometimes when you have depression, it just sort of, you get really apathetic about a lot of things. And the only place that I had reliable sort of joy and comfort was food. And so I think, and this is all coming off of, you know, a, a restrictive period in my life. So the binge part of me like really set in. And food just, again, it became a comfort. It was a security blanket. And it was how I coped with the depression that set in. 
What do you think it was about that idea? Like, this is my life. This is my future that kicked that off. Well, you know, I've done a lot of therapy, so I've really talked this out. And I think part of that, I have a lot of fear about just aging and death. And so something about that felt very final and very real and very adult. So my parents in their effort to protect us from all the struggles that they had as immigrants gave me my brother's everything and did a lot for us. And so I had, even from a young age, the sense that I couldn't take care of myself, that I somehow needed to depend on other people. And I think that career realization of like, oh my God, this is like an adulting thing that I'm going to have to do was really the impetus for that panic attack. Like part of me just freaked out and, you know, it's very complicated, ties it to the future and dying Mm -hmm. and (laughs) the finality of (laughs) death. And, you know, it does, it finds weird ways to express itself, the anxiety. Yeah. Uh, I can identify with that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. So food, you know, food, uh, yeah, food became this security blanket for me. And it was, again, sort of on some level, very wonderful. And then diet culture, because paleo culture did such a number on me. I mean, there was so much guilt. There was so much, not so much shame, but just, I I don't know. I I literally lived at this restaurant for like my entire entire dietetic internship. And um, every night I'd go there to eat and I'd have like macaroni and cheese every night. And it was just, I don't know, it was this thing I needed in my life. And I always do wonder, I'm like, God, had I not been restrictive, like what would I have coped with? I actually don't know. I mean, in a way, yeah, the fact that food was there and food was your outlet might have been beneficial. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why I always like in my practice, oh God, emotional eating. I'm like, why do we vilify it? It is so great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so important. It's so important for so many reasons, for coping, for getting back the energy that you lack, that you've yeah. lost through dieting. And I mean, too, I think about eating for perceived emotional reasons might not always be the emotions that are preceding the eating. It's oftentimes the lack of eating, the lack of food and the restriction that amplifies or even causes the emotions in the first place, you know, like we know it can, you know, starvation can trigger anxiety, can amplify pre-existing anxiety, can bring on depression, you know, even in people who never had any pre-existing mental illness, right? Like people, the Minnesota starvation experiment really shows that these mental health outcomes can just come exclusively from starvation and people who had no predisposition towards mental illness in the first place. Well, and I wonder then if any of that had some involvement in like that sudden, I mean, I think definitely it was my anxiety, like, you know, legitimately on its own, but if then that sort of hungry state that I was in emotionally, psychologically, and maybe even physically, because I was coming off of this restrictive paleo period. Yeah. So the emotional eating really kind of gave you your life back in a way. Yeah. And it really was that, that thing that was reliable and safe. And even if it was temporary, the relief that it provided, it was something because when you're depressed, it's just this like constant state of sadness and you're like looking to get happiness wherever you can find it. And even if it's only 20 minutes. So um, it really, again, it's it was something that helped me survive and cope because I truly don't know how else I would have coped had I not had that. 
it sounds like a really painful period in your life. Yeah, it really, it was. And it took me several years to get out of it, but I started to get out of it after my dietetic internship. I got a job in the Bronx and food service. And then I started working as a breast cancer dietitian also in the Bronx. And so once I started making money and having sort of just a stable job and routine, that's when I really started to come out of the depression and, you know, I had that sense that, okay, yes, I can take care of myself. I, I don't necessarily have to rely on other people. So that was really great. And I was doing that. I was in the Bronx as a breast cancer dietitian for a year, working mostly Latinos and African-Americans. And it was a very weight centric <laughs> position. I probably did a lot of fear mongering in my days about oh, there's some studies that show an association between certain um, body sizes and recurrence risk. So my job was to help people lose weight, to reduce the risk of recurrence. And instead of, of course, at the time, I, I didn't know that you could get health benefits just by focusing on behaviors. Um, I put a lot of emphasis on the number on the scale and that's uncomfortable. Yeah. I feel like so many of us have gone through that as dietitians. We just, that's all we know to start with. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I, on some level, I wasn't like a, you know, I, I was fairly liberal with my recommendations, but I wasn't, you know, I still, I definitely did harm. And it sounds like you were in it yourself too. So you had those diet culture thoughts still swirling in your mind and <laughs> governing your behaviors too. Exactly. So how did you get from there to working in intuitive eating and health at every size? Like what was that transition like? It was an interesting transition. And I think I have to credit it back to the 2016 election, mm. <laughs> which was a terrible time. Uh, the second wave of depression definitely hit after that. And I was at that time, I had left the job in the Bronx and I was working part-time at a nonprofit downtown in New York. And then I had time to start my private practice, which was focused on weight loss mm -hmm. pretty much. And the 2016 election hit and my God, it like, I, and I think this speaks to my privilege that I can shut myself off from the horrors in the world. And it was really like a rude awakening. I, like the misogyny and the racism that were coming up were just, I don't know. It was like a, a tidal wave hit me. And that was just an uncomfortable, you know, my parents came, were undocumented when they came here. And so just a lot of the rhetoric was really uncomfortable. And that loss was just devastating. And it's just been I think that was an important moment for me because I realized I'm like, well, what am I actually, I was kind of asleep before that. I feel like, like, what am I actually doing in the world? Like, how is my work helping or impacting people? And that was really like a cognitive dissonance that set in after the election. Yeah. I feel you on that. I feel like it, it woke me up to as also someone with a lot of privilege thinking like, you know, that there was no chance Trump would ever get elected. And then just underestimating the power of racism and xenophobia and misogyny and all of that. Yeah. Well, the irony is I actually, I didn't underestimate it because we, where we live in LA is a fairly conservative area. And so I have sort of seen what's out there. And so I wasn't shocked so much as disappointed. And I think that was 
Yeah. I, I mean, it just, when you are the daughter of undocumented immigrants, it just hits this nerve and it makes you feel again, that otherness for me, which I can shut myself off from because of my privilege and my appearance, it just resurges. And I think about that time, right after the election, I read Big Girl by Kelsey Miller. And that was my first introduction into intuitive eating. And after that, so a couple of things happened. I met Alyssa Rumsey, who was just transitioning to intuitive eating. And then I had a client who came in for weight loss and it turned out she had history of bulimia. And I was like, I can't do weight loss with you. But what about this intuitive eating thing? And I had no training in it. I'd done a lot of therapy, which I guess gave me some sort of (laughs) qualification to talk about food choices and how they make you feel. And then I had a couple clients who had plateaued in their weight loss and a few that had even started regaining. I had seen them for that long and I had no explanation for the weight regain, zero. And that all kind of came together at the same time. And I, you know, over a couple, it literally was a few months. I woke up one night and was like, I can't do the weight loss anymore. It just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. So that intuition really, really set in. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, um, at that point I had started an Instagram account and I was Instagramming about restaurants, got the privilege and like (laughs) eating out in New York city. (laughs) And, um, I was still doing that and I put this intuitive eating spin on it. And I remember, my God, cognitive dissonance moment number three, Maria Paredes posted uh, on Instagram a post about donuts. And she said, if you're only posting about donuts, you're missing the point of health at every size. And I had literally just posted about donuts like that morning. (laughs) I was like, oh crap. (laughs) And and so that was, I guess, sort of the next phase, which was, you know, I I really started diving into the social justice aspect of it. And I took a, a break from that Instagram account and was really stuck with it for a long time. I was like, I don't know where I'm going with this. And then one day, you know, I'm just like hanging out on Instagram, watching people. And I'm like, you know, no one's talking to Latinos. Like all of these dietitians, like don't look like me. They don't have my background. I'm like, who's talking to Latinos? And it sort of dawned on me. I was like, well, no one is. And maybe small accounts, but no one really big in the space was. And I just sort of had this idea. I'm like, well, no one's talking to them. No one's making educational materials with Latinx considerations in mind. I was like, maybe I should do an account. And, and, go down that road. And then I had an idea. I was like, well, what about like course? Because the problem with a lot of these intuitive eating coaching and courses is they're too expensive for people of color and not just, you know, anybody who doesn't have economic privilege, they're too expensive. And from a Latinx perspective, they are not culturally sensitive. And so I just had this idea for the account. And then maybe a couple of days later, I DM'd Melissa Carmona at the Spanglish therapist and was like, Hey, do you want to create a course together? <laughs> I really just had these passing chats with her on Instagram. And that was the impetus for, for the course. That's awesome. Yeah. I was like, no one, you know, I think you need to see people 
who might look like you. And even if they don't fully look like you, they at least have an understanding of your background, where you came from, the values that you're, you know, Latinos are not monolithic, but we share sort of basic cultural values. And I think it's important when you're looking to somebody in social media that you see parts of you reflected back. That's really so true that intuitive eating is right now pretty dominated by white, thin, cisgender folks, women, you know, for the most part. And so I love seeing it broken out into, you know, a million beautiful pieces that are, you know, reflective of the real diversity in the world so that it's not just being taught by one type of person. Because, I mean, I certainly try to be culturally inclusive and sensitive and stuff, but I there's lots that I just don't know, that I don't know that I don't know, you know? And so people have to, like, feel comfortable to bring that to me, which not everybody does, you know? Not everybody is going to want to work with someone or learn from someone who doesn't have their background, doesn't share their values, doesn't understand where they're coming from from the get-go. So it's awesome that you're providing this resource. Yeah, it's felt good. So the course, it's been such a labor of love. And we've started sort of phase one, we launched it, and we sold it to several people. And we're in it right now. And we had our first, we have a live Q&A component to it. And it just was, it was amazing. It just people on the call and just, I don't know, Melissa and I, uh, it was the first time we were really working together. And there was just this sort of ease and beauty to it. And just, again, that sense of understanding (laughs) that even though we all might come from different parts of Latin America, there are, there's just this sort of basic shared experiences that we all have in this country being people of color. Um, and usually, you know, sons and daughters of immigrants. And I, I, there's just something really lovely about that. And it just, you know, Melissa and I have been saying like, even through the tough moments of putting this course together, we're like, we know that this is something, this is for something greater than us. And we really are just truly, we want to, put out something that is comprehensive, as inclusive as possible, and culturally sensitive. And people, when they come to the course, they feel like, oh, I see, I can see myself here. And it feels comfortable. So great. Are you doing like videos, audio? What's what's the format? Yeah, so we pulled people. And, and this is, again, this is just sort of having worked in Latinx communities. People wanted a, a mix of audio and visuals. So we went kind of old school. We're doing like PowerPoints with our voices over them. And they've been, you know, it's a lot of work to do that stuff. But I honestly, like looking at them, I'm like, wow, I'm really proud of the stuff that we've put together. And that way people, you know, they can go back and just sort of look at the video and see some text. And I, I think, you know, what's, what is a bit complicated is you're trying to accommodate different education levels. And there's people who are PhDs in our, who are taking the course and then people who are high school educated or less. And so it's hard to sort of find that middle ground in terms of language that you're using. And it's been an interesting exercise. So we're starting to get feedback and already for like round two, we're thinking, okay, we have to change this and we have to change that. So it's very much a responsive course in that sense. And hopefully like right now, the price is a little higher than we would like it to be. But over time, the goal is to make it a standalone course that people can purchase whenever they want and take it at whatever pace they 
because that was also that was also a consideration is that people can't show up once a week at one time for, <laughs> to learn, right? So it really needs to be self um, self taught and self led. What are some considerations you see in the Latinx community with regard to intuitive eating? Like, what are some some of the things that come up the most for people? Maybe sticking points for implementing intuitive eating. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know if this entirely answers the question, but I, and I don't want to romanticize, but a lot of our ancestors ate intuitively and a lot of our parents ate intuitively. And when you come to this country and you start to get all these messages about what food is right, what food is wrong, you start to get confused. And so I think a lot of uh, the work that I'm doing is to connect people back to their roots, connect people back to their bodies and to show them that the intuitive eater was always there. It just got a little lost in the mix. And I think a lot of the work is definitely, and I haven't gotten to this part of the course yet. I'm still writing content, but talking about how these cultural foods that have gotten vilified in diet culture, diet culture says they're unhealthy. And these are foods that actually help to survive centuries of oppression. And I think back to like my time dieting and me being scared to eat rice and beans and tortillas and cheese that I had every day growing up. And I think, oh my God, literally my dad experienced hunger in his childhood. And these are the foods that nourished him when they had food. And here is this oppressive system that disconnects you from the very thing that literally has me here on this earth. That's really profound. And I think a lot of, so a lot of the education is going to be around that once we get to the gentle nutrition portion of it, (laughs) (laughs) because we don't really touch that in the beginning, but sort of connecting people back to their roots, connecting them back to foods that nourish them emotionally, physically, and foods, again, you know, like brown bodies are under attack, brown and black bodies in this country. And so food is this way to reclaim autonomy space and connection. And I think that's an important part of the work that Melissa and I are doing is to remind people of that. Absolutely. And yeah, to help people reclaim that intuitive eating that is their birthright and that was with them, you know, in in some cases for for quite a while in their childhood and adolescence. And no one can ever take that away from you. That's that's sort of the, the big message is that We might be under attack as a group, Latinos, but no one can take away your sense of self, your connection to a culture, your pride in that culture. And hopefully this is a way to help people, again, get back to their bodies and get back to those the roots and and give them a sense of self and a sense of pride in who they are. Yes. And it sort of highlights the oppressive nature of diet culture where disconnecting people from their culturally important foods is another way to keep people oppressed, is another way to dismantle cultures that could maybe stand up against white supremacy together, right? Because disconnecting people from their heritage, disconnecting people from their families and their their culturally important foods really can alienate people from from their culture and, you know, make them less likely to organize and get together and stand up against this system. Exactly. And it's also a way to pit each other, pit one another against each other, because then if you have people who are really clinging to sort of the moral superiority 
portion of diet culture, I think. And I, I was in that camp. Yeah. So that was a way to, again, you talk about hierarchies <laughs> and, and that's a way that keeps people separated. Yeah. So there's like this real important social justice piece, even to reclaiming food, reclaiming people's relationships with food. Yes. Oh my God. And that's what that donut post was about. Ah, yes. <laughs> Maria Paredes. <laughs> <laughs> started, helped start it all. Let's, yeah. Yeah. She's awesome. She's amazing. Oh, well, I love that. I'm so excited for the course. And tell us where people can find you and find the course if they want to sign up and learn more about it. Yeah. So people can find me on Instagram at law, which is L-A underscore authority, which is E-A-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y. My professional website is www.eatthority.com. And then the website for the online course is actually www.latinxhealthcollective.com. And that houses all the information about the course and who knows where that website will go. So hopefully (laughs) some interesting places. Yes. Well, I can't wait to see. And we'll put links to that in the show notes so people can find all this great info. And yeah, I just love the work you're doing and so glad you're out in the world and that you're local here too. So love to connect with you further. Of course. Thank you so much. So that is our show. Thanks again so much to Carolina Gazar for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode and subscribing to the pod on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform, whatever that may be. You can see all the places to subscribe at christyharrison.com slash subscribe. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. You can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is another great way to help new listeners discover the show and is always very much appreciated. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on your own anti-diet path, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript, go to christyharrison.com slash 229. That's christyharrison.com slash 229. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. A big thanks as always to our editor and sound engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, and our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasik, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. Our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. And I'm your host and producer, Christy Harrison. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Thank mm-hmm. you.